Hi, and welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I'm your host, Jen Milius, and I'm so glad that you're here. And before we get into the show, I want to invite you to visit jennifermilius.com forward slash start to get free resources focused on helping you get your book and message out into the world. Choose what resonates and take steps towards being seen and heard, showing up at the table, owning your space, and sharing your book and message. And now let me introduce to you Jennifer Lang. Born in the San Francisco Bay Area, Jennifer Lang lives in Tel Aviv, where she runs Israel Writers Studio. Her prize-winning essays appear in Baltimore Review, Under the Sun, Midway Journal, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and is an assistant editor at Brevity Journal, longtime yoga practitioner and instructor. She has two unconventional books, Places We Left Behind, a memoir in miniature that released September 2023, and Landed, a yogi's memoir in pieces and poses, releasing October 24, both with Vine Leaves Press. Let's dive into the pond and meet Jennifer. Welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I am so excited to bring to you Jennifer Lang. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's really nice uh, to meet you. Get to know you. I am so glad you are here. And I would love for you to start, Jen, with how did you get into writing? How did I get into writing? So we were just talking casually about French and France. So it actually is a, probably the most roundabout story you might ever hear on the planet Earth. And that would come from me. I was a big reader growing up. So that, yes, I was not a huge writer. I hated writing papers in high school. I did not understand grammar rules. I fought with my mom who had to help me write my papers. I needed help with my college applications. I needed help all the way up to graduate school applications. I didn't understand the grammar rules. I didn't understand the, the probably the most basic rule, which I left high school with, which was you don't end a sentence with a preposition. You, you turn your sentence around. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand how to flip my sentences. So like stupid smart is what I would call that. Like I was smart and stupid. So I had been learning French, what I consider all my life. My mom put me into a pilot program. I was six. I stayed. I stayed through middle school and high school. I did two years of college French. And then I went to Paris my junior year where I was mute for like four or five months. So couldn't understand a thing. And then I got it. And I got it to the point where by the end of the year, the, the academic year, and it was time to leave, I, I really didn't want to go because I kind of was just getting it. And I went back to college. I was in school in Chicago and I finished school and I went back to Paris because a job fell in my lap. I'm getting to the answer to the question. And I was a bilingual assistant in a world, in the World Jewish Congress, a Jewish nonprofit. And I was translating from French to English, and I was writing letters in English for the for the Jewish community of Europe, which had just started to understand in the late 80s that English was their common language. That was the language to communicate in. And I started to understand, because in French, you cannot end a sentence on a preposition, even in speaking. You cannot. It is grammatically impossible. And I just started to understand how their sentences reformed. I, I, I just, I understood it somewhere like deep in, I, it's not muscle memory, it's something else, but it was this incredible click that happened. 
And I started writing soon after that. I love that. So it really took, and, and on top of that, you became fluent in French. So also, that, that oh wait, I awesome. forgot. I forgot. I didn't even take an English class in college. I hated English so much in high school. I took a major in school that helped me avoid taking English. I never took a literature class. Oh no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so then, That's my story. But, well, but to your point, then because of this, you know, a different path really to get to writing books, which you have done. What did become that? piece inside of you that says, I really want to pursue writing more in a path versus just writing because it's part of my job, writing because it's required for me to help bridge communities type of thing. Like, because to your point, I mean, I came from a corporate environment and that corporate environment, I did a lot of writing, but that kind of writing was different than writing creatively or even a nonfiction book. It was similar, but it was still different. And, you know, but I still did a lot of writing, you know, and right. when, you're in, when you're in school, you do a lot of writing when you turn in papers, even if you're avoiding some, they still require one at times. <laughs> so I would say, absolutely, I completely agree. And I would say that the first real break from writing for work happened. So so I, I was in Paris for a year and a half. I worked in the Jewish community. And then I was on my way to graduate school thanks to my mom helping me write my applications and get them in to, to I wanted to go to school in public policy I wanted to be in DC I wanted to work on the national level to get foreign language mandatory into the American school system in elementary school in the way English is mandatory all, I, I'm going to say all over the world for elementary school kids but it, where I've been I don't know if it's all over the world and I left Paris because in the middle of the year after I quit my job, so like February, and I had this kind of five, six months to kill before graduate school. And I went to Israel to see my sibling and really close friends who were living here. And I never intended to stay. And five weeks after I got here, I met my future husband, fell in love, stayed. And so the writing didn't happen at that point either, but it did happen during my my quest for like, what am I going to do in this non-English speaking country? So it happened slowly. It was a really progressive path. First, getting a job as a copy editor for a journal of Jewish history in English through university press here, then editing academic papers for professors through one of the universities, like using the language that I had just acquired, not in high school and college, but in my job after college. And I still wasn't writing creatively at that point, but what happened was we left. And then I worked in the public affairs department of the big university called the Technion. It's kind of like the MIT of Israel, it's an engineering school, uh, newsletters and donor things and all that. And then we left and we went to Paris for a year for my husband's MBA. And there I got involved with a magazine. I don't remember the name. It was something about travel in France or Europe, I don't remember. I wrote two pieces on travel in different regions of France. I don't, I don't think I was paid, but I had a byline, which was a new word in my vocabulary. And I liked it. I really liked it. It felt creative to me, even though I've come far from there. And I would say that was really the start. And that was around 1994. 
And so by the time 97 rolled around and we were already in California and I had two kids, I had left a job in marketing and I was taking a class on how to write a nonfiction book proposal because I wanted to write a book, not a memoir, didn't know that word yet. I wanted to write a book about what happens when your sibling becomes like ultra fervently religious. When you're from a family where you have maybe two or three siblings and one sibling goes off this deep end. I, I, I had that and I had other friends who had it. And so I started, to, I took this class and that, that's, where, that's where it all happened. You know on, the, I, on the last night of class, when we read our first chapters out loud, I finished reading, so proud of myself, so proud of myself. And I actually gave birth the next day to my second kid actually. And the teacher says, I think this should be a memoir. And I looked at the teacher, I'm like, what's a memoir? 1997. So that is, that's where really the switch happened. I love that. So what here, I'm hearing a few things. One of which is that inspiration comes from different places and that you were open to that inspiration. And I also hear you wanting to create a form of, you know, community in a sense, but also a sense, a feeling of, other people that you saw with the same challenge that you might've felt that you're not alone. I see you. I hear you. I get it. This is how I am processing, or this is what's helping me. I want to help you too. And that that's yeah. kind of how I see nonfiction in general, but that's especially memoir, because when you're writing memoir, it's, it's really personal. It's not the entire thing. It's just a, a, a facet, but it's that facet that you feel you need to share in such a way because you want to help other people you're really being a servant and that that's what I'm hearing is that uh, is that how you are feeling that for that first project that I was working on absolutely and it was much more of an academic approach because that's really all I knew at that point I would say is that what I've done here in my memoir um trying to be service oriented I wouldn't say it's that it's more it's more, here's my journey. I think you can relate to it. It's, it's a very female journey. My story is a book of voice of being a young woman who lost her voice really, really early on in a relationship that turned out to be marriage. And it took me 20 years to get it back. And I think that we as women really suffer from this. But it made me also realize this isn't really in the story as much as what's happened post getting it into the world. I didn't have a voice growing up either. My older sibling dominated. He had the microphone at home and he had a lot of power. And I just played the role in my house of the good Jewish daughter. And there wasn't really another role to play. And so I think that my, my yearning to be heard is by this point in my 50s was like it had become loud and clear like clear to me that I was ready to do this so so let's talk a little bit about the so you get this new insight right before you're going to go into labor that the piece that you've been working through in this in this project this course was really memoir so we have one point but this memoir did not come out until 2023 right this memoir is not about my 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 sibling right right no but 
yes. uh, what I'm getting at is that there's been a duration yes. of, of yes. time that has happened between this first epiphany of, of a memoir and this, mm. uh, this book that has been published recently in September. So what happened to fill in those gaps? Even if this book that was happening, that this epiphany of, oh, you've written, um, this is looks like memoir. To your point, that doesn't mean that's the book that got published. It's more about that's the, oh, how do I work seed. with this? Yeah. 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 You're making me realize because it's the first time I have talked about that class and that that comment from that teacher in a long time, like just how long this road is. I've been saying this book took me seven years, but I think you're correct. It actually took me whatever it is, uh, 2023 minus 1997, something with a six at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a long journey. It's a long journey. I mean, through that journey was a lot of therapy, more couples therapy. It's a big part of my book, a big part of our story, a big part of me getting my voice back. Um, I'm kind of a failure at therapy alone. I get bored. I get bored. Actually, ironically, I get bored of hearing my voice. It is, it is ironic. No, actually, let me ask you something then. You wrote this first piece in this course, and it just, it pretty much helps you to get comfortable getting to write what made you to to decide no I want to write a memoir I really want to write about this and then it's the piece the seven years to your point to get to the book that's published what helped you to decide I really want to do this because it's one thing to write for yourself even if it is memoir it's another thing to choose to share it. So could you talk about what helped you to make that transition? I mean, you, you're covering a lot of time in that during which, there you go, during which I took so many writing classes. I worked, I was a content writer when the dot-com industry was starting in the 90s. I worked at a website called Baby Center as a content writer, that's what I was called. And I had so many gigs. I was a freelance writer I, and I was raising kids. And I had so many gigs and my, my first person voice was like kind of in my stories, but not really. I was more reporting. I was more interviewing experts. So I would use a little personal anecdote and then segue into whatever the story was about. So lots of writing was going on during these years, but I was reading what was the back page personal essays of all of the national magazines. And I would read these personal essays, like while standing in the checkout line at the grocery store. And I would well up with tears, like get, get shivers. I just would, I, and I was like, I want this first person voice. So that was going on in the early 2000s. This realization that I understood how to write one way or several ways at that point, I'd started in academia and then I, you know, slowly gotten out and done service oriented pieces for website work. And then I wanted this first person voice. So I started to take classes and the classes I went to were called creative nonfiction. I kind of feel a little bit like without really knowing what it meant. I just knew it was nonfiction. And then it was just such a journey. One of my most amazing, amazing first teachers, her name is Rebecca McClanahan from the South. I kind of feel like maybe from Virginia, um, sweet Southern accent, living in New York. This is where we were at the time. And she used to memorize poems as a girl. And so she would start every class by reciting a poem. And I learned a lot from poetry in those classes. I'm not a poet. And yet, if you read this memoir, you will see what people call poetry. I also teach writing through my my business, Israel Writer Studio, and I start every class with a poem. 
I, I don't read, I, I read them because I've never memorized a poem in my life. It's a journey. It's just, it's a, it's a really long journey. There isn't any one moment of, oh, I have this light bulb. It's okay. I'm, it, it's like little seeds being planted or crumbs and following the crumbs. So for me, it was class to class, teacher to teacher, you know, that, that kind of thing. There's nothing I, linear about it. Yes. I love how you put it with the crumbs. I think of the breadcrumbs idea all the time. So so what would you tell a writer who's listening and realizing, I want to find my voice. I think that the piece that I'm working on, whatever this piece is, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whatever it is, maybe they feel like, you know, I, I'm writing this, I, I want to do this, but they're realizing that what they're doing is is helping them find their voice. And maybe they might feel a little scared, like, um, this is a little daunting. Is this the way I want to go? What is this? What's uh, uh, maybe some fears are bubbling up for them. How would you reassure them that what they're pursuing is worth doing? So I would say there's some ways to work creatively with that fear. So one would be to take it and to write it in second person. Another one would be to take it and to write it in third person. I mean, those are just great writing exercises. And I have a piece that I'm really proud of that's written in third person that I didn't start there. It started in first person. I shared it with a writing friend. We, we swap work and critique. And my friend said to me, it still feels like you're angry. It still feels a little raw. What if? And I was like, okay, I'm going to follow that. What if I turned it into third person? And that smoothed that out. I don't know how to say it any, any other way. But another thing to think about in the very beginning of writing, it's like we aren't writing for an audience. We, if we feel compelled to write, most of us, it's like it is for ourselves. It, it, it doesn't have to go beyond that. Write your greatest fears. Write your greatest um, longings. Write your worst nightmares. And just know you never have to share, ever. And only with time, I think, with practice, with experience, with confidence, I think we start sharing and that's okay. But I would also say, try to find a writing group or a writing partner that you trust and admire. Like I, I work with women virtually who I've never met in person because we know each other's words and we admire them. And so we start, we started sharing and we're really honest with each other and our feedback. So in the beginning, it's just for yourself. Just let it go, let it rip or try second person or try third person. Like, you know, I love those tips. I love that so very much. So when you decided to write this memoir in miniature, I love that so much. But when you just decided to write this and then made the decision to hit, to seek a publishing path and publish your piece, what did that feel like? Eerie. <laughs> Shaky finger on the send button scary vulnerable and how'd you I, overcome it yeah that's the thing I was gonna say vulnerable but then I have to keep saying but for some reason I it doesn't bother me that vulnerability I think it bothers a lot of people I think it can it can really undo people I don't know what my parents did with me but they definitely injected a dose of confidence so I grew up with a few mottos thanks to my mom. And one of them is what's the worst that could happen? Rejection. 
One of them was, there's no harm in asking. And another one was, there's nothing to lose. And I would say that by my early 20s, those were like my guiding forces. And so here I am all these decades later, because there's a few decades that have passed. And that's, that's kind of how I live. And I you can't, yeah, you can't really give that to someone, which is a shame. No, but what I'm hearing, though, it goes back to what you were suggesting earlier is you're gaining confidence when you choose to share your piece with a writing partner. You're gaining confidence when you share your piece with a writing group or an editor mm -hmm. or what have you. So when you are, you know, it's courageous to say, hey, would you read this? And then as you get that feedback and figure out what you're going to do with it, then you gain more confidence. So what yeah. I hear you saying is, well, what do I have to lose by asking this person, hey, would you be open to reading it? The worst they could say is no, the rejection. The best they could say is yes, and give you feedback. Okay, then it comes back to the worst they could say when you get the feedback is I don't like this. But what you right. do with that is saying, okay, are you really the ideal reader? Or was there some feedback in there that was really constructive and helpful you just it might have hurt to hear it the first time but when you can take some distance it helps you so I hear you applying the same thought processes and helping writers go through that if you take those questions and ask yourself when you're facing that next milestone maybe those might help you to move through that and continue to find your voice right absolutely I mean Yes, I've been in writing groups for years. I'm no longer in a writing group for, for several reasons. One of them is I just have a lot more confidence in what I'm doing now. But I think the other thing is having find finding these people that you either they write differently from you and you admire what they're doing or you write similarly. And so there's a real, you know, understanding um, where you share the same language, the same I, my first writing group in New York for seven years, we were all disciples of Rebecca McClanahan. So we'd all taken her classes and then we formed a writing group. So we shared the vocabulary, yeah, right? Which is amazing. It's such a gift. It's not always easy to find that. So it's absolutely that. And I think that if you've got the right people that you're sharing your work with and, and that the, the feedback, it won't be, okay, you're not my ideal reader. It's, oh, I can learn from this. That makes sense right? It's taking that feedback, which is hopefully given with a lot of love and respect and saying, okay, like that, I need to think about that. I need to work on that. And, and this is this thing about vulnerability. Like I, I can say, I can sit here and say, I'm really good at certain things like scene writing. One of my strengths. I love to teach it. I'm really bad at descriptive writing, basic descriptive writing. I have to work really hard at it's like, it, it just doesn't come easily to me. And when I read, if I start a book that is like three, four, five pages and it's all descriptive and there's no character and there's no scene going on, I put it away. It's not what I want. So learn, learn, look at yourself. Like, you know, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And then work on the weaknesses, right? That is really cool. Really, really cool. So I have a question for you because I totally loved when you said memoir in, in miniature. What, what prompted you to want to phrase your book in such a way? And 
why did you want to have a, a memoir in miniature? I, I seriously love that so, so much. So I don't know how tall you are. I'm five and barely one. My early childhood, I was teased mercilessly. All kinds of un-PC names. Like, you know, we don't, we don't use those names anymore. But like two boys chasing me home after school. All my mom could say to me was good things come in small packages and they like you. And we had to go to the principal's office and shake hands. And I had to switch classes, like really tormented for being short. Okay, so it's very appropriate to me that I have a miniature book. It didn't come to me at first. It was not what I had, it was not what I was working with. I actually, it's a very playful manuscript. And I was working with, I coined a term, memoir Ella, like a novella. So it's, it's 13,000 words, pretty short. A, a traditional book is 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000 words. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty abnormally short. So I was pitching it as a memoir, Ella, when, the when I signed the contract with the publisher, they said, you know, don't get too attached to this label. That's not, we're not going to be calling it that. So I was like, okay, I let it go. I mean, don't get attached, right? I'm also a yoga teacher. So some of these things are kind of present in yoga. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me a while to, to really figure out like what, what was like the tagline? What was the subtitle? I knew I needed one. I, I didn't know if it should be something about home yoga, because there's a lot of that in the story. I, I really was struggling. I love alliteration. So at some point in like kind of brainstorming, I came up with this memoir in mini, mini memoir, memoir in miniature. And it just kind of, you know, I, I, I loved the alliteration of it. And then it was just figuring out the 13,000 words is a miniature book and each of my chapters is pretty much kind of one page. So it just worked. But, but I like that because what you did was honor what was right by you. You, mm -hmm. you know, to your point, if I, if the, if typical books are 70 ish thousand words, okay, I get it. But you honored what was right by you. And yes, that went against the grain in a sense of it being a little different than what's out, but it also embraced finding your voice. It, it, it showed, this is what I've written. This is how I do want it to be presented, no more, no less. And you owned that, which is another form of finding and trusting your voice. Yeah. I love that. I love that so, so very, very much. Jen, would you please share the title of your book? Places We Left Behind, a memoir in miniature. I love that. I think that is such a, it it just feels so inviting to want to find out what what is going on and how can I learn? That's what I feel when I read the title and just as I was getting to know you before we interviewed, I just was like, I really love that. What prompted you for that title? The Places We Left Behind? Mm-hmm. So it comes from the text. It's in the book. Yeah. The text came first and I was, I had had a different title and I didn't like the first title. And so I went into the text to look for something that was lyrical and that kind of said what I wanted to say. So it was in the text first and then it became the title. I mean, it's all moving targets, right? Until you land on what I feels right. That. And to your point, that first title that you have for your your manuscript it might not be the final one 
but again, you trusted your instincts, you found, you used your voice and you, and you applied it. So I love how this whole theme has just come through in different aspects of this. Jen, this has been awesome. Thank you so very much. Where can people connect with you? Where can they be a part of your writing studio? Where can they find your book? So you can find my book on Amazon, bookshop.org, I think it is, and Barnes and Noble. You can reach out to me if you want to bring it to your independent bookstore where I can't get it so easily because I live abroad and I can give you what's called a sell sheet. And you can find me at either jennifer at langonline.com or Israel Writer Studio or Facebook, Jen Lang Writes or Instagram, Jen Lang Writes. And I'm so happy for all the love it takes to, to be in a non-English speaking country and to have a book out that for me, the target audience is in America, England, Australia, Canada. It takes a lot of love. It takes a big community. So thank you for any, any and all of it. I love that. And, and I have a second book. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that. Yes. I'm, okay. Thank you. Yes, please. Yes. So this story starts in 1989, Places We Left Behind starts in 1989 and it ends in 2011. And my second book, Landed, a yogi's memoir in pieces and poses, starts in 2011 and it goes for eight years, but it also jumps back in time. So it's in present tense, past tense, and yoga poses, present, past, and poses. (laughs) I love that because it's also a continuation. So if you feel like book one is a cliffhanger, Maybe it is, even if yeah. it's unintentional the first time, but still. It was so unintentional. I have no words. <laughs> book, book two came first and a friend with whom I'd been swapping manuscripts, see how I switched my grammar there? She said to me, hey, you might want to look at putting together a, a collection for a chapbook competition. Do you have any of your older work? And then that's what, that's what this is. I anyhow. That. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm glad you said that. So where can people find out when book two comes? Is it best to sign up on your website somehow? I don't have a newsletter. I'm not doing Substack. I'm not doing any of that. But um, it's on my website. There's a page devoted to, to each of the books. And yeah, I'm keeping it simple. Keeping it to what I can handle. Understood. And I'm so glad you made the time to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening today. I'm so glad you were here. I'd love to hear what resonated with you from this episode. So connect with me on Instagram at author Jennifer Milius and let me know. Your book, your message, your body of work is worth sharing. And you are the right person and the only one who can share it. Keep writing and keep putting yourself out there because the people who need to hear your message the most are waiting for you. They are waiting for you to step up to your next level of genius so they can have the impact they're meant to because you inspired them. I'll see you soon.